Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. When we began planning the Tackling Equity series, place came up as an important topic several times. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about your zip code being more important than your genetic code. Often when we look at maps or participate in discussions about place impacting health, we're looking at city blocks or comparing neighborhoods in large cities. For our region of Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, we are centering the beginning of our conversation on disparities and challenges experienced in rural communities, and we'll finish the episode with a conversation about housing in Omaha. I'm talking with Danielle Pettit-Majeski this morning, who is the Public Health Director in Washington County, Iowa, and Danielle also serves on Washington City Council for the City of Washington. So Danielle, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Hannah. So can you tell us just a little bit about Washington County and where it is and um, kind of the demographics of your area? Absolutely. So Washington County is a kind of a, what we would call a bedroom community for the Iowa City metro. We are about 30 miles south of Iowa City. Um, and our population as a county is about 22,000, a little over 22,000. And we are actually one of the few counties um, that continues to grow in population. And so uh, we have various communities within the Washington County. So Washington is, is the county seat, but we also have Kelowna and Wellman and Brighton and Ainsworth, um, the Mid Prairie School District, the Highland School District, and um, the, of course the Washington Community School District. Um, we have a, a robust Hispanic population. We have a um, robust Amish population in the northern part of the county. So even though we are small, we do have a, a diverse population and um, a really growing um, community. Thanks, Danielle. So the topic of today's episode is uh, location matters or place matters for health outcomes. And while Washington is pretty close to Iowa City, it is a very rural county. So can you talk about uh, what that means for the health of your community? Um, I know recently a lot of conversation that you and I have had or been a part of has looked at lack of services and lack of access to things due to being rural. So can you address that and some of the other kind of challenges or opportunities you have being in a rural area? Sure. So I think one of the things that you most have to think about when you are working in a rural community is how to best reach the people where they are. Um, because like you said, transportation is an issue. One of the things that we do is we try to ensure that every time we're having a WIC clinic, so women, infant, and children, um, we are also concurrently having a um, immunization clinic. So if parents are coming and they're bringing their kiddos to their WIC appointment, we want to make sure that they can also head downstairs and get their childhood immunizations. Additionally, at the same time that we have our WIC clinics, we've coordinated to have a mobile food pantry come to the community um, that comes out of Hiawatha. Um, HACAP serves Washington County. And so that was a robust opportunity to say, can we have you come on the same day that we have WIC in the community so that maybe families that are coming from Kelowna or Brighton or Ainsworth can also then access the mobile food pantry on the same day. You know, getting out into the community, going into the schools, um, going into community centers, whether it's providing blood pressure checks or immunizations or going into workplaces. One of the things that we do um, during the flu season is we actually walk around the square and we go into businesses and we do our flu stomp and we provide flu shots to people in those businesses so that they don't have to make an extra trip. We really try to think about how we can access people where they are. An additional thing that we do is we go to the city of Kelowna, um, which is in the northern part of the county, and we provide services there, immunization services there, so that our Amish population doesn't have to come quite as far so that we can get closer to where they are to make our services more accessible to them. 
Uh, one of the things you mentioned was um, food pantries or mobile food pantries. So many people who live in urban and suburban areas are surprised to learn that healthy food is hard to come by in rural areas. Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for several years, and people uh, made the assumption that we all had gardens in our backyards and all these fields that are growing corn are growing vegetables for everyone. Um, so can you describe what the food landscape looks like in your area and why access to healthy foods is a challenge? You know, that, that is such a great question. And it's such an interesting um, idea because, you know, we are, you know, the heartland. You know, I put in air quotes, like the heartland, and we are kind of feeding America and we're considered a very agricultural state. And yet a lot of times in our rural areas, we do have these food deserts. Um, or like if you're if you're a community like Brighton, which is um, in the southern part of Washington County, you don't have a grocery store. You only have a Dollar General. So lacking access to fresh produce, you might be able to get some canned green beans, but you're not going to be able to get a bag of fresh carrots. Um, and so we have looked at a number of different ways of how can we increase access to healthy produce. So now we do, we are lucky enough, we have um, a couple of grocery stores here in the city of Washington. So Hy-Vee, Fairway, and Walmart all sell fresh produce. Um, we have um, grown our Washington Farmer's Market, and we are actually trying to expand into um, the Double Up Food Bucks and be a SNAP provider for the entire market so that we can encourage families to come out to the farmer's market to buy fresh produce when it's in season. Some of the other things that we've also talked about are a community garden. Um, that's been discussed for about a year um, in our community um, wellness coalition. But those are things that have the topics that have been coming up over and over again. The challenges with that is who owns it, who's responsible, what are the rules for it, who maintains it, and then who gets the produce. So trying to figure out some of the best ways to go about that. But we've really seen our schools step up in this arena. So every single one of our high schools has um, built a greenhouse so that they can start um, not only teaching kids how to garden, but then also giving them an opportunity to maybe sell their starts, um, to learn more about how their food is grown, and to help expand access to fresh produce. We're seeing um, some school gardens. Um, we had one in the, in the um, Washington Community School District a couple of years ago, but it was just really challenging um, for, for the school to maintain it, especially when all the produce came in during the summer. And so trying to find volunteers who are able to harvest that food and take care of it. Um, but we are seeing that in the Highland School District that they're getting, in the Mid Prairie School District that they're putting in some gardens. So we are working at how we can increase access to produce, um, especially if it can be at a lower cost. Now I will say, we've got a food pantry that's open every single day, but the mobile food pantry has been great because there is such a robust um, access to, to produce, to meats, um, and to other things that are sometimes missing on, um, produce, or on pantry shelves. That's great. And expanding farmers markets is also um, really great, but it's another access issue if the farmers market is only open once or twice a week. And that's when someone's at work or when their kid has a soccer practice, then it's hard to get there and get to that. And farmers markets tend to be a bit more expensive. Right. And be available some of the year. Right. You know, and we saw this actually um, last summer was was a challenge with the weather you know even you know we put in a garden and we had a lot of our stuff get drowned out with the rain and then um you know it kind of died in the heat we saw a lot of our our farmers not get produce to the market until the middle of july and so even though you know wick passes out farmers markets coupons it was really kind of hard for people to redeem those because we had such a hard um year last summer for produce production I'm also really intrigued by your comments about all of the high schools having greenhouses. Yeah, it's super exciting. Very exciting. How long have they had those? So um, Mid Prairie built their greenhouse first. Um, and actually we had been working with them with our wellness coalition to see how we could partner, you know, what are some of the things we could do? How did they want to use that? How could we assist them? And then both the city of Washington or this Washington Community School District and the Highland Community School District got grants 
to build their own. Um, so that's just really exciting because we want to be able to partner um, with what we're doing in the city of Washington. And, and I say the city of Washington because when you are working with um, a, a rural community, you play with whoever raises their hand and says, I'll come to the table. And the city of Washington has done that. And so we have been um, actually collaborating with um, the Washington Community High School and also Halcyon House, which is a retirement community um, that are right adjacent to each other in the city of Washington um, to see if some of the produce that is grown in the high school greenhouse could be used in the um, community garden that Halcyon has offered to host on their property. And so to see is how can we collaborate with, you know, this, um, with this community and also with the high school students to really not only bring in that intergenerational connection, but also to benefit the citizens of Washington to increase produce access. Wow, that's really great. Oh. So we're excited about it. We know um, it's going to take probably another year before we're able to implement it, but there's, these are exciting things to have down the pipeline to implement. Mm -hmm. And it's important to you know, use that example to underscore that change takes time and change, healthy behaviors are habits and creating healthy communities is a long-term process. It's not a one-size-fits-all or an immediate, um, there are immediate results. Right. And I, I think about this a lot because I'm 35. And so I probably have 30 more years in the workforce. And I always think to myself, you know, I need to be thinking about what do I want to work towards so that when I retire, we're starting to see things really shift. Um, because I do, I think it's going to take time. It, it takes investment. It takes getting the right people to the table. And I think sometimes, especially when you're working in community coalitions, which you have to do to get things done, because we just don't have capacity at local public health to do it all. You know, it takes time for people to understand the investment. It takes time for people to say, yes, I, I think that that's valuable and I want to participate in that, especially when a lot of the people that come to the table are already really busy and really involved in other things. That's one of the, um, it's like two sides of the same coin when you're in a rural community, you know everyone and everyone you know is working on a lot of different things. And so it's a lot of the same people keep getting brought to the table because we have these relationships, but we're also trying to work on mental health or we're trying to work on housing or we're trying to work on, you know, pick a topic and we're, and we're trying to work on it. Yeah, of course. Um, one of the other topics that I've heard you talk about recently is access to emergency services like ambulances. And um, it's been, I grew up in a small town, but it's been a while since I've lived in a small town. So this was something I hadn't even considered before you brought it up. So can you talk about some of the challenges with maintaining emergency services in a community like yours? Sure. So I think the biggest challenge that we've really seen recently is because our existing county ambulance is a private business and that owner plan to retire. And so what we have looked at over the last year or so is how do we respond to this? Um, so the decision is really to have this, have this ambulance come under the county, but there's a number of issues with that. One of them being the Medicaid reimbursement once the Medicaid privatized to the MCOs. Um, that was actually a contract amendment that changed so that this private entity could get an additional influx from county tax dollars to essentially supplement the loss that they took from Medicaid privatization because we as a community needed to invest further into a private business so that we wouldn't completely lose access. Um, one of the other things that we've done um, just in this transition and knowing just kind of how fluid things are and how easily this service could be disrupted is in the city of Washington working on um, implementing a QRS or a quick responder service, so a volunteer service um, so that we have additional folks because if we've got a couple of ambulances and one of them is, is in Brighton and one of them is on the way to the university, then there's nobody in the city 
to respond if you dial 911. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't necessarily understand is how long it can take for resources to reach you when you're in a rural area. You know, you may have um, a police officer respond, you know, and they've got maybe an AED. All of our sheriffs will have an AED. Um, you know, and the police officer may have an AED or they might have a staff lead kit, and there, but there's only so much that they can do until you can get to a, until an EMT can get to you or a paramedic can get to you. Um, and depending on where they are in the community, it's really important that we have those um, volunteer EMS and QRS people responding. Um, but I do think that this is this is a challenge statewide this isn't just in washington county we've had a lot of conversations with some of our rural counties to the south of us jefferson county um henry county having similar issues and a lot of them are tied back to that reimbursement and the fact that ems is non-essential service i know that there's some work being done in the state house um, to basically change the sunset so right now um, in the code you can do a vote um, basically letting the people decide if they want to increase tax levies to pay for it that would sunset after five years and I think the the language that they're looking at right now would would, would um, increase it to 10 and that way you're not constantly you know having to vote whether you're going to say yes we want to have this resource or no we don't um, because when I think about it you know to me we are on a continuum the healthcare system is a continuum and you've got public health You've got your primary care, you've got your emergency care, your hospital care, and then you have your EMS services. And regardless of um, what our capacity is, when you lose one arm of that continuum, there's an additional strain. You know, whether we provide those services or not, there's going to be um, additional strain to the rest of the system. So it's really important that we have this robust system. Personally, I would love to see it be um, a essential service like police and fire. But until then, we are trying to work within our capacity and within our scope to provide the best services to our residents as possible. Do you have a volunteer fire department? In the city of Washington, yeah, we do. Actually, all of our um, firefighters are volunteer. We do have, I think, in, in the city of Washington, we have four employees, um, and then everybody else is volunteer. Okay. And are the firefighters all EMTs? No. Okay, interesting. But our QRS will um, be housed under the fire, fire department, um, and so we are hoping to do it, um, a conditional EMT level service so if you do have that emt you can work up to your scope um but then otherwise you would only be able to work to the scope that you are licensed for interesting got it um so another issue that uh, we've been hearing a lot about recently in iowa is birthing centers so since 2000 in the last 20 years a third of birthing centers in iowa have closed uh your county's birthing center has closed in that period um, the birthing center in a neighboring county closed in that period. It's closing. It's, set it's closing. Okay. Um, and three of your neighboring counties didn't have birthing centers in 2000 at all. So what impacts have you seen in your community on that? And what does that mean for, uh, for Washington, for Washington County, and for the people who live there? Yeah, this was... This was devastating, I will say. Um, you know, I got phone calls after um, we got word that our birthing center was gonna close and people said, you have to do something. And I'm like, I, I can't, like there's there's not something that I don't have any control over this, you know, but I, I talked to our CEO at the time of our hospital to just have a better understanding of what, what, is, what is the problem. And oftentimes like you do lose money in birthing centers. Um, but because again, I go back to um, the Medicaid reimbursements had decreased. Um, and so, you know, where they were at a, their deficit had increased by about $200,000 um, once Medicaid privatized. And so they just, that was not sustainable. Um, but what we have seen is in, in, the, in this area, if you want to be able to deliver a baby, you either have to go to Burlington or you have to go to Iowa City. Luckily, we have seen some partnership between our hospital and the University of Iowa, where they are sending midwives down to 
um, Washington Hospital every Friday so that people can at least get their prenatal care here in the community. That was a big concern for me, um, especially because we have a maternal child health program through our local health department um, that people would really struggle um, getting their, their prenatal care. Because if you think about um, the time it takes and how, how frequently you need to go in for those prenatal visits, especially in your third trimester, you know, if, if folks who already have difficulty with transportation are having to go up to Iowa City every week or every two weeks, that can really be a struggle, especially if you're trying to take off work, you know, where it maybe would have been 30 minutes before, and now maybe it's two hours, you know, so having that disparity um, for our community members. But so I've been, I've been pleased to see that we've, that we've brought in those mid-levels or those um, midwives to come and at least do prenatal care, but it, it does make it more challenging. And I think about it too, as a, as an economic development issue, you know, if you want to bring jobs to your community, if you want to attract families to your community and it's, difficult to find a place to deliver a baby. I mean, that's not only a public health issue and a healthcare issue, that's an economic development issue. Absolutely. I think one of the other interesting things when we're thinking about birthing centers is in some counties with pretty low population, um, Washington County, I believe you said is about 22,000 people, which by Iowa standards is not that small of a county. So when you have really, really rural counties that maybe have less than 10,000 people in them and there aren't all that many babies being born, having someone who's, you know, capable and competent in delivering babies when they might only be doing it once a month is just not something that these really rural counties can sustain. Right, right. And I think, too, that that makes it harder, especially if you want to attract people to rural Iowa. I mean, there's a ton of benefits to living in a rural community like you know it doesn't take long to get anywhere you know you're not ever stuck in traffic you know it's you you know your neighbors I mean like I've lived in big cities and I've lived in rural communities and there's there's pros and cons to both you know but especially if you are trying to you know keep young people here and yet it's really hard to access things and they have the the ability to leave you do you see that you see people going towards larger communities where they have access to more things. Yeah. So birthing centers aren't the only medical services that are uh, getting harder to come by. We hear about specialists and specialized care um, being harder to access. There are shortages of all kinds of specialists um, from mental health to dentists and others and people with special health care needs like um, individuals with disabilities or other issues have a really hard time finding the care they need in rural areas. Um, so what are some of the things that people in rural areas can do to address this or what are some of the ways that people are responding to this challenge? So let me touch on mental health first. I know a lot of the things that they're talking about right now is it's focused really around telemedicine and, and how can they do um, like especially more prescribing um, like for psychiatrists um, over telemedicine, which, you know, I think is definitely an improvement to not having access at all. So trying to see how can we expand that? How can we make that more robust? Um, you know, I do think we are lucky that we have a, a great minibus system in our in Washington County. And so, you know, for transportation for people with special health care needs, if they do need access to um, like if they need to go to the university for an appointment or if they need to go to Iowa City for an appointment, they are able to access that transportation to get them there. It does take some coordination. It does take some time, but there is that ability um, to get to those appointments. Dental is a challenge. And I will say again, you know, relatively Washington County is well-placed. Um, even though we do have a dental shortage, um, we are close to the university, and so we send a lot of people to the, the College of Dentistry. Unfortunately, sometimes that line gets really long because a lot of our surrounding communities are doing the same. We also have a community health center on either side of our county. So um, just to the west and the east of us, just across the county line, we do have community health centers that can assist with those services as well. Um, through our iSmile program, we're really trying to connect people um, with 
with dental care and access to dental care. But I think that there's also been some good things that have been happening um, to expand that, especially in those areas like ours where there is a dental shortage area. And that is um, changing some rules and regulations regarding where registered dental hygienists can practice um, to expand it to nursing homes. I know that's something that's being discussed, which would really help alleviate some of that issue. Um, I know one of the things that we saw was changing the requirements for ISML coordinators to go from having three years of experience to one year of experience, which helped um, a rural community like mine hire an ISML coordinator. Um, because that was a really that was a big challenge that that rule um, kept that position open for us for seven months, and so we actually had to sign a waiver. And once we had done that, then they really pushed to change the requirements because other, you know, rural counties don't have that same you know flood of applicants um, that you might have in in larger communities. And so we we do the best that we can to respond to that. Again, one of the things that we're trying to do is. Um, dental sealants in the school, um, preschool um, fluoridation. Um, so we go in and we do fluoride varnish applications through funding through our early childhood Iowa grant dollars. Um, but there is, there's, there's, there's still more need. We talk about community water fluoridation and how that's a good gap filler, but that can sometimes be a controversial issue as well. So there's, there's a, number of, a number of opportunities to kind of tackle this this challenge from and so we try to look at them all. Is there something that you think we should talk about when we're talking about um, issues with with health in rural America and rural Iowa that we haven't touched on yet? I think even just housing. Um, I We recently got a homeless shelter in our community and it was like the day it opened it was at capacity. Um, you know, we also provide home health and there's been times where we provided services in the park. Um, if you are being discharged from the hospital and you don't have a safe place to heal, um, that's a complication, that's a problem. Um, that's gonna impact your ability to get better. Um, affordable housing is an issue. Um, you know, we, especially we see, um, a lot of the folks that are from here, a lot of, we are an aging community as well. I mean, we're growing, but we also have a, a rather large aging community. And, you know, sometimes you see people with all of these chronic illnesses and they just really struggle. Um, they struggle to get by on, you know, social security. They struggle to get by and being able to pay for their medications and they're making decisions about, you know, do I, do I get this care or do I, um, you know, buy food? Like, which, which do I do? And um, just even some of those gaps that we see and all the time, really where, you know, we have programs and criteria and then there's a person who just falls through. You know, they really can't afford to um, maybe get the kind of, maybe they don't meet um, the skill level for Medicare and they're not homebound. Um, but they really need somebody to come in every day and just help them with their meds and then they maybe they don't have the funds to pay for it, you know, and so we do have some grant funds that can assist us with that, but just understanding, you know, that we are a safety net, but that net has holes, you know, that's, I mean, you think about a net, it still has holes and people still fall through these cracks. And, um, you know, we try our best as a small community to try to gather together and, um, and help those of us around each other. But I think that there's still a lot more work that needs to be done and you know just thinking about because a lot of the people who do live in rural areas the people who have stayed are older and so there's a number of additional complications and so that can really exacerbate some of those issues so yeah there's there are complications there's there's pros and cons like I said to living in a rural area but um, we do see those we do see those gaps in services and how do we how do we fill those gaps? Um, how do we create a more robust system that is going to, you know, lift all ships? Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing more about Washington County. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Danielle gave us a good overview of some of the concerns and challenges rural communities face. Now we're going to go to Andy Wessel in Omaha and get hyper-local. Andy has been working with community partners to undertake a systems-level approach to housing. 
Today I'm talking with Andy Wessel, a community health planner from the Douglas County Health Department in Omaha, Nebraska, about some of the housing work that he has done in the community. So Andy, you've done a lot of interesting work in the Omaha area. Could you tell us a bit more about that and why you as a health department made housing a priority? Sure. Uh, so part of this goes back to just sort of the professional side of my work. So community health planner, I, you know, to, I try to explain to people what the heck that actually means. And, and uh, there's a term that Dick Jackson used to use where he would talk about like built environment work is about health policy and concrete. And it's basically that when we make housing decisions or transportation decisions, real estate development decisions, all of those sort of things as a community, the impacts are going to last for decades. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're figuring out what those health impacts are going to be. And so that, that's the sort of professional connection of like we're making these really important long lasting decisions. Um, but on the personal side, after I got my master's in public health, I ended up uh, going to Detroit. I, jo I joined the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, uh, which is like the Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, but Catholic and went to Detroit and worked for five years on homeless issues there. And obviously, um, you can imagine the housing struggles that Detroit has. Uh, it was a really eye-opening experience, both in terms of, um, you know, the poverty realities and the political realities of, of the United States, the, the piece around racial dynamics, because it was interesting, you know, being a white guy living in an 85% black city. Um, so all of those things were fascinating and, and it, it got back to that piece of like just this was part of when housing first was first becoming a thing uh, across the nation and so that piece of just how critical housing is uh, to somebody being successful in their life uh, was a big part of what I ended up getting exposed to and and what basically happened is uh, here at DCHD we ended up getting selected uh, for the Kresge Foundation's Emerging Leaders in Public Health and that was a leadership development opportunity for the health director and, and then a staff person, which was me. Um, but we decided we wanted to really focus on housing affordability. And the reason why was uh, we saw so much of what was going on around the nation. And we know that, you know, things happening at the coast, you wait a little while and they'll get to the middle of the country. And we wanted to try to be out ahead of it as much as possible. And so, yes, that was a little bit of a different sort of role for the health department, but a big piece of that was th this idea of how how do we serve as a chief health strategist for our community? What, what does that actually mean? Um, and we're sort of when we thought about it, we thought of, well, who serves as a, uh, a sort of chief strategist for our community? And we, we felt like the Chamber of Commerce was probably the best example of that. Um, and they do that for the business community and and sort of working on sort of like, how do you have a strong business climate? Well, that similar sort of role to what we're trying to do for public health. How do we make sure that we really have a healthy, vibrant community? Um, how do we make sure that all parts of our community really um, are strong and, and provide people with the opportunities they need to be healthy? And so that was a big piece of like, if we wanna be in that kind of role, then um, sort of a, a leadership capacity that we need to be addressing issues that are, are really key to how successful our community is, both in terms of health, but just in overall, like, are we succeeding as a community at all? That's really interesting. So I know as part of that work, you brought together a big coalition and um, some partners that people might not often think of as being public health partners. So can you talk a little bit about bringing that coalition together and what some of the challenges and opportunities were with creating such a broad diverse coalition and what the kind of impetus for that was? Sure, um, part of it was that we were using a, a process um, that was developed um, by, by a group called uh, Engaging Inquiry um, that had been done in partnership with the Omidyar group. And it was basically a systems practice, systems thinking, you know, systems mapping process. And so what was nice about that and what worked well is that the, the invitation for a lot of people was come to these one day workshops where we really like worked through what are the dynamics going on, you know, with housing affordability, housing quality. That was sort of what we did in the first workshop. And we had 30 people there for that first one. And it was, 
really like, okay, what are the key issues going on? And we heard everything from like lack of political will to, you know, rising building costs to issues around racism and segregation. And then we worked through like, what are the downstream impacts of those things, but what are the upstream causes of all of those things? And then ultimately built that into a systems map where you have sort of the, the different dynamics going on. What are the virtuous cycles, the vicious cycles? Um, what are some stabilizing loops um, that, that are all at play in that? And then after we did that, that was sort of our, you know, our theory of context. Here's what's going on. Then what we did was bring people back for a second workshop that was our theory of change. Like where are their leverage opportunities? Where are the things that we could do that would have an outsized impact? Uh, and then we had about 40 people for that one. And then the last one, we ended up bringing people back together and said, what really can we actually like get done? Like, what does it look like to prototype solutions and start building those things out? Uh, and that workshop, we ended up having 60 people there for that. And again, it was nice. We had people who could facilitate at the tables. You know, we had uh, the way to be able to dig in on all of this. And the the thing that worked well is that it was getting everybody from the people who were the community organizers and the housing advocates um, with the sitting down with the landlords and talking through how they see things. You had um, the homeless agencies sitting down um, and talking with real estate developers, you know, uh, the urban and regional planners, you know, talking with neighborhood uh, association groups, all of these sort of things. So we, we had really a good mix of people uh, there. And, and that was part of the intent was you were trying to get as sort of broad and as complete a picture of the system as possible. And it, we, we kept using, if you know, the, the story of the blind men and the elephant where people touch different parts of the elephant and then either, you know, figure out how to combine their knowledge to get an accurate picture of the elephant or get, you know, in arguments over, well, you know, no, an elephant's like a fan for the person that touched the ear or no, an elephant's like a tree trunk for the person that touches the leg. Like that was what we were trying to do is bring people together and, and get sort of that complete picture. And so it took having folks from different part of the system who experience it in different ways because obviously you know the the homeless individual experiences the system quite differently from the person who's a real estate developer so we just wanted to reflect that and build that in so that's the one of the challenges is combining all of those different perspectives um, but the systems mapping process allowed us to do that um, really well the other some of the other challenges is of course is there's uh franklin covey talks about this this thing called the whirlwind that we all have our day jobs that are just the thing that we're responsible for the thing that people will hold us accountable to and whenever we do something that's sort of new and innovative there's not those same sort of accountabilities built in to make sure that we get it done so a lot of times that new and innovative work gets overwhelmed by the whirlwind of the day-to-day -day responsibilities. And so how can you keep things focused enough and moving forward enough where people will be willing to make the time and where with the small amount of time that they can cobble out from the day job that you can make some real progress. And so that's really what we push for and, and try to find a way to build out. This is a related question. So you're in Omaha, which is a fairly large city, especially for this region. Sure. Um, what do you see from one part of the city or from one neighborhood to another? And how was that part of these conversations? And how has your work addressed those differences? Sure. Um, well, one of the things that's interesting with like a systems approach is that you end up with a lot of things that um, can be either a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle, depending uh, on kind of which way they, the dynamics start going. And one of those things that was sort of at the heart of the, the systems map we created was, was this piece around like, do people feel like the, this particular place, whether it was a whole community, whether it was one particular neighborhood, even down to a block or a house, like, did people feel like this place had a future? And if they did, then they would make investments in it, whether that was choosing to live there, whether that was putting money into it, um, those sort of things. But if they then make the investments in that place, then the quality of that place improves. <clears throat> Excuse me, the quality of that place improves. And then more people are gonna feel like, oh, this place really does have a future. And you get into that virtuous cycle. But part of what we also heard was that for many parts of Omaha, particularly the, the parts of Omaha that were redlined, um, 
you end up getting a vicious cycle that you had this thing where partly through federal policy, it was, no, this place doesn't have a future. Um, we're not gonna secure mortgages here. People can't make those kind of investments around home ownership, um, housing stability, all of those sort of things. So then you end up with the quality of that place diminished and more people feeling like this place doesn't have a future. And that, I mean, yes, Omaha is a big city, but that's one of the things where there's some overlap that you see going on with rural communities is you have some of those those economic dynamics going on, some of those social dynamics going on where there is some of the challenges of like, how can you turn around what in some ways gets to be working as a vicious cycle. So I'm gonna take a step back a little bit for those of us who are working in public health day in and day out, um, housing has become a big topic in the last few years, the yeah. last couple years. Um, and to the point that the annual message from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation last year was called, our homes are key to our health. So why is it important for us to talk about housing, housing when we're talking about health? So uh, one of the things I love to share with people is like, it, it's called the Bar High Framework, so Bay Area Regional Health and Equities Initiative, the framework they developed, um, because it really does a great job of showing sort of the, the range of places where people can be working in terms of public health and they identify what sort of current public health practice and what's emerging public health practice and sort of the upstream challenges we have to face. And that's that's part of where we're at with the whole piece of around talking about social determinants of health and health equity issues is it's, it's pushing uh, us further upstream uh, in terms of our work and, and you know, one of the interesting things is, is a lot of times I'm doing presentations and I'm going out and like, you know, doing a presentation before a bunch of bankers or a Kiwanis club, that sort of thing. And one of the first things I like to talk about is like, let me, let me explain why you have a public health guy, a guy from the health department here talking to you about housing. And my sort of way of getting, you know, into that conversation is saying, you know, if you think about what gets us sick, housing is probably not going to be the first thing that you think about you know maybe you go to lead stuff or maybe you go to safety stuff and you can make that connection but when you flip that and instead think about what is it that we need to have in place in our lives in order to be healthy you know to live a long and full life like then you're going to see that that housing is foundational um, that it's critical piece. Uh, so that that piece of like, if we make that shift to what do we need to be healthy instead of what gets us sick, um, that, that then it's easier for people to understand why housing is so important. Another way to think of that, that that connects to sort of the upstream downstream piece is like for public health, are are we playing offense or are we playing defense? And the challenge is the downstream stuff ends up being largely reactive. It's largely defensive. And, and to some re regard, like as a field, we've lost that piece of playing offense. Um, we've, we've gotten good at doing the health education stuff. Um, not that we've had nearly as much success as we would like. Um, but, but that piece of like, do we again have a leadership role in our community? Do we have a policy role? Um, are we looked to um, in terms of like a key role in terms of when our community is making decisions? Uh, and if the answer on those things is no, then we're not playing offense enough. Uh, we, our community needs us to be strong advocates um, for what it takes to make sure a place is healthy. And, and if we're not playing that role, then I think that's part of the challenge of what we're missing right now in public health. So what are some of the actions that are coming out of this work you've done with the coalition to address housing and health disparities related to housing? Yeah, so there's um, a couple of uh, really practical pieces that have come out of this. And one of them goes back to, you know, I talked about those different workshops that, that we were doing. Uh, the last workshop that we did when we had 60 people ended up happening a week after there was this evacuation of uh, 500 uh, refugees that were um, uh, from from Myanmar, from Burma, um, here because there were what what ended up being over you know around 2,000 code violations in the place, and so the 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 city and the other agencies like went in and actually evacuated everybody out. So that took place a week before our workshop. So obviously we're coming together talking about housing issues at this workshop, and people wanted to make sure to talk about that um, and. 
the the group in particular that dug into that what they discussed a lot was that the 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 challenge with just sort of legal and enforcement mechanisms is that there's a lot of disincentives certainly for for landlords for property owners but also for tenants to actually report things going on and to report them early um, so what could be done to actually make it so that people would be able to like work together to come up with solutions and address things early before they became bigger problems and so what we're actually working on right now is a housing ombudsman uh, position housing ombuds position and the we actually had Creighton University there they have a negotiation conflict resolution program that they just wrapped up a needs assessment around that position for us and then we're going to be presenting that to our board of health next week um, and that's that's a big piece of the way we're trying to address this is instead of an enforcement or legal mechanism can we go ahead and build in a conflict resolution or a real sort of collaborative problem solving approach um, that works on these issues because so much of what happens yes between landlords and tenants it can be adversarial or at least has a lot of conflict and tension in it um, but those sort of things happen between government agencies and nonprofits and all of those sort of things too so that's one big piece is the housing ombuds that's a practical um, follow up on what we've been working on. The other is that the health department's actually in the middle of uh, a racial healing project. We ended up getting selected by by City Match, that's a national um, maternal and child health uh, agency that just happens to also be located at the University of Nebraska Medical Center uh, to work on like discussing what are the sort of the, the the issues around race that have gone on in your community that end up affecting health outcomes and how do we end up talking about those things and part of the challenge is that when we just share disparity data um, a lot of times what that ends up doing is um, just sort of reinforcing a story um, that that people as individuals are responsible for all of this and that's because by default people you know most naturally think of of health as sort of an individual behavior issue like are you going to the gym you know working out um, being active are you you know on a diet all of those things are sort of what we understand most easily about health but that piece of like the the context in which we make decisions the opportunities we have or don't have all of those things are harder for people to naturally go to and so the, the historical piece of all of this of the the ways in which um, things like redlining uh, other forms of segregation and discrimination uh, the the way that those have had an impact a very consistent impact on health outcomes isn't necessarily always seen so sometimes the challenge is when we're communicating about health disparities um, it ends up creating a sort of blaming the victim problem instead of a, a challenge of here here's a, an, this inherited legacy we have around this issue do what do we want to do about that like what's what's our responsibility now as as the people working on these issues um, to make things better to to ensure that we really do have a healthy community so what impacts what health impacts have you seen from this work i know it's a little early to be measuring that so i'm curious if you have some anecdotes or any data uh, about this work and the impacts it's having on your community or on the health of individuals or individual populations so this is the part where i would love to say that we did this work and it's you know now the like you know 12 plus years of um of difference we see between our um on the low end for zip codes you know and 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 then between and between that the low end and the high end of zip codes that that you know that difference has been erased and and you know life expectancy is improving all around and all of those sort of things and of course we're not seeing that and part of this whole thing is of course these these issues have been things that we've struggled with for for decades, for generations, um, and so they won't be turned around overnight. Um, however, there are definitely signs for uh, reasons for hope and things that we're excited about. So part of this is that um, the city of Omaha actually passed a like 
a landlord uh, registry and proactive inspection. We didn't have any proactive inspections. So, you know, the analogy that gets made is we make sure as a health department to go out and inspect restaurants on a routine basis and we're proactive about that. And so we're good about making sure we're protecting people's health when it comes to the food that they eat. We're not as good, not as strong about protecting people's health when it comes to, to where they're living. And what does that mean? And, and yes, there's tricky sort of uh, legal and ethical issues that come in around all of that. Um, but it is this piece of like, what do we need to do to make sure we are protecting people's health? So we do have an ordinance now that was in place that was partly passed in response to that, um, that incident that happened with Yale Park, the Yale Park apartments that I mentioned. Uh, so that is uh, one part in place. The other thing is that we've just seen our partners um, working on these issues in a, in a different sort of way. And, and the easiest example is like our largest healthcare system, CHI Health, that they've really gone off after housing issues. They've started partnering um, with our healthcare, with um, we, figuring out things like how do we have um, social workers and housing advocates in our emergency rooms um, so that we can get people connected with services right away instead of just turning them back out on the streets. Um, they're in the middle of what's called a medical respite grant right now. That is, if somebody is not so sick that they need to be hospitalized but still isn't ready to go back and sort of um, be back in a shelter or something, what kind of housing do we need to have in place so that they have the stability to actually recover? Um, all of those sort of things. And, and, and we've also been seeing a lot of um, work in terms of like, what are the things that we need to address in terms of like zoning uh, issues? You know, how do we make it so it's possible um, to build in what's called missing middle housing? So the housing that used to exist between single family housing and a large scale apartment, you know, whether that was duplexes, fourplexes, courtyard apartments, places where people would live up on the top floor and work on the, the uh, down uh, the bottom level, all of those sort of things. That used to be what we um, built in place and you can see in the older neighborhoods, that's what we had that was provided sort of different steps in terms of affordability and how do we go back and make sure those are things that we can build back in. So we're grappling with that both as a community and as a state. So those are things that are signs of progress and and, it's good there's a good bit of momentum right now but yet we're not at the point where we can say here look we've we've done this and now people are you know uh noticeably healthier well it takes time to build houses and it takes time for people to live longer yeah <laughs> so uh it'll be interesting to watch this over the coming years and decades to see what impact this all has well, and, and I, again, that's part of our challenge is that some of the reason why, uh, you know, the the work of if, uh, going downstream ends up, it, that's that's an easier place to research. That's an easier place to like, you know, go ahead and do, you know, uh, a, an actual study on those sort of things. To the, at the, once you go upstream, the complexity of everything makes it really hard to tease out. And the, and then the fact that any sort of thing that you're doing is going to be collaborative, you know, being able to evaluate what kind of impact you had is really tough. So mm -hmm. that's one of the pressures that pushes us downstream, uh, even when the the solutions are will would come from working upstream. But I, that part of that's just like let's admit we don't have all the answers, and we're you know trying to figure out sort of our best theories of change on what would make a difference and yes, we need to have that grounded in as much evidence as possible, but we also, there's that story of, you know, looking for your keys where the light's better rather than where you actually lost them. And that's part of the challenges. We know that we have lots of issues around housing and other social determinants of health that are ultimately responsible for health disparities, um, but finding ways to work in those issues and make changes around those, in those areas is, is new and tough work. Yeah. And I mean, one of the big issues is funding. How do we fund that kind of work? Yep. <laughs> how, how do we fund that work uh, and and support it long enough that uh, that we can make a real difference? And I mean, that's that's part of what's been nice for me is that uh, for a long time I was I was on soft money grant money where it was write the new grant and work on a new thing, um, and you know, finally got to the point where it was like, no, we're gonna 
put you on county dollars um, so that you have the flexibility and the stability to continue working on the equity issues and the housing issues. Do you have other uh, things we should talk about related to this work or related to housing in place as a determinant of health? You know, um, the thing that I would say, like, sort of two things that I think are really helpful, and part of this is that there's a role for public health in terms of being a subject matter expert, in terms of being a content expert that I, th I think we can do a good job with and we should stand on the evidence that we have and all of this. And, and part of my lesson learned is that I was originally, uh, one of my original jobs with the health department was doing health impact assessments. And, you know, with an HIA, you would be produ producing some report that in many cases was, you know, 30, 60 pages, that sort of thing. And I learned quickly that you should, you really need to get that down to something small. But I, I remember being very proud of myself getting what would have been like a 60 page report down to like a three page summary and then going and sitting down with a city council member and talking about it and hearing like, yeah, but I'm still not going to read that. You like, you still, you like one page front, like that's what you mm -hmm. can get from me because that's how little time I have. And so there's a challenge with that and that like, though we in public health really pride ourselves on being evidence-based, the reality is that a lot of our just, the decision-making that's going on that's shaping our communities is not nearly as evidence-based as we would like it to be. And that presents a challenge of how do we make sure we take the, all of the, the research and best practices that we have, but yet be able to, to be part of the decision-making processes, to be able to influence those, um, to have a role to play in those things. And so that's a whole struggle. Um, to, to maintain our credibility, um, yet be unapologetic about the work of public health and, and what the needs are uh, around creating a healthy community. But the other thing in addition to that sort of content expert piece is like, how, how can we be process experts? How can we be people who can figure out uh, ways of doing this work that really can create solutions, that can create um, true collaboration, that can build trust? Uh, and I think that for that, like learning some um, some facilitation skills and practicing those uh, on a regular basis. So technology participation or whatever you find that works like is invaluable. That's something I found that's been so critical to doing this kind of work. Um, and the other thing I found that's been really invaluable is um, the International Association for Public Participation. Their foundation's training is really built around these sort of challenges of when you have a decision-making process, how do you engage people? How do you, um, how do you let them be part of coming up with the answer, of shaping the answer that you have to an unanswered question, which is really what a decision is. A decision is, we, if, it's, if it's a genuine process and you haven't made the decision already, then you have an unanswered question. And that's a whole challenge to like really involve people in being part of that. But the that foundation's training from uh, the International Association for Public Participation is really phenomenal for, for digging into that. Um, so I would highly recommend if anybody has a chance to that. Nebraska just got started with having a chapter of IAP2 as it's known. And so it's, it's something I, I highly recommend along with facilitation training. That's great. And you know, both of those points you just made really underscore the importance of relationships and building coalitions so that people can come to you or partners can come to you or the health department uh, with help getting answers and with help getting that evidence when especially elected officials have many, many issues they're working on. So making sure they know who you are and who to come to to get the answers related to health is very important to the success of our work. There's, there's a whole thought um, called agenda setting that's basically like there's only so much bandwidth that policymakers have and how do you make sure that your issue is something that they're going to consider and, and that's a thing that we have to figure out as, as a sector. How do we make sure that that's part of what we understand how to do in a way that's still credible, in a way that's still, um, you know, uh, true to our evidence-based roots, but also, again, it, it, it fulfills that role that we have around being unapologetic advocates for what it takes to make a healthy community. Yeah, that's great. And that's a great note to end on.
Uh, so you've shared, we've shared some resources throughout this uh, episode, including the 2019 Robert Wood Johnson Foundation annual message, the Bar High Framework, and the IAP2 uh, toolkit. That is it a toolkit? There's, there's, they have lots of tools and resources, but uh, the the foundation's training is really a great place to get started. But I can also share like they have this it's called the pillars of public participation that's sort of a good summary of what public participation is all about yeah um, so we have all of those resources on the health equity toolkit on our website so visit mphtc.org health equity to find any of those resources thank you so much for joining us today andy okay glad to be here Danielle and Andy provided a lot of great information about place as a determinant of health. For more information, please visit mphtc.org slash health equity. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.